standing and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. We're going to continue working through this portion of Scripture, at least through the end of the encounter Jesus has with the rich young ruler. This morning, our focus is on verse 15, 16, and 17. And before I read those three verses, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon us. Our gracious Father, in Jesus' name, come to us. Come to us particularly at this hour, O Lord, to enlighten Lord, us to your word and your word to us. Make it clear, make it known. Lord, may we digest it. May we see it as sweet as honey and eat it, O Lord, for our spiritual nourishment. May we this morning have enlivened in us, O Lord, this great doctrine of covenant children made known and clear to us this morning. May that doctrine be vividly set forth and may our hearts become aflamed by it, O Lord. And may it begin to shape our prayer lives, Lord, our encouragement, our hopes concerning our offspring, our children and our grandchildren. And even children, Lord, to come, Lord, that are not yet here. So Lord, as we look at this text of scripture, Make it known, make it clear. And may we all be edified, O Lord, who come to this text by faith. In Jesus' name, amen. And beloved, begin reading at verse 15. And they were bringing their babies to him so that he would touch them. But the disciples saw it and they began to rebuke them. And but Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. For truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. A little testimony to start the message off this morning is one of the great struggles I had as a young Christian, a young husband, and a new father was coming to this understanding of of how my child was viewed uh, in the church. How did God see my children? First, my child, and then my future children, if God would bless my wife and I with more than one child. But having one child in that God graciously granted to us already in this world, my wife and I spent days and months, almost two years, struggling with this doctrine of covenant children. Yeah, I grew up as an early Christian, not as a young man. I was in my early 20s when I came to faith in Jesus Christ. But growing up spiritually, I was in a Southern Baptist church that had a very narrow view, if any view, of Christian homes or Christian families. It was a church that had a hyper-focus on the individual and making a profession of faith, which is nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with focusing on having a someone make a profession of faith. Nevertheless, the ministry of that church did not, well, it did not progress far beyond that. And I remember thinking multiple times, even though it was a great church and it was a good church and it was a church that I learned so much um, in about the things of God and very thankful to this day for the ministry of that church. But I still remember to this day thinking that I go 
every Sunday, and it seems like every Sunday, I'm there just to get saved again, and to get saved again, and to get saved again, and to get saved again. And I was really struggling with, well, life. I was struggling with how did God see me as a husband? How did God see my wife as a Christian woman? How did God see our marriage? How did God see our relationship with one another? How does God see our children? How do we overcome sin? How do we deal with the things of life? How do we address politics? How do we address this culture? All of these things was flooding my mind even as a young 20-year-old. And I just remember sitting back thinking, does the Bible even contain answers to these questions? And by God's grace, as I begin reading uh, some of the Puritans, and I began having an introduction to a, a broader understanding of the Bible, a richer understanding of the Bible, the doctrines of the word of God, the doctrines of a Christian family, of a marriage, of, of children, all of these various things, of politics, of culture. As I begin to drink deeply from the Puritans, becoming much a follower of the Puritans, then I begin seeking out churches that followed the teaching of the Puritans. And I, I, even at this time, beloved, I still had no understanding of, of Presbyterianism. I didn't even know. I had always been taught that Presbyterians were liberals, that they didn't really believe the word of God, and, and, and that they were just fake Christians. That's how the church I went to saw Presbyterians. And so that's how I saw Presbyterians. I'm a young Christian. I'm listening to these older men teach me these things. And so that was the adopted view that I had about Presbyterians. And then as I began reading the Puritans and I began uh, broadening my conversations, I was so hungry. I was so thirsty. I would be working and I would drive by a Presbyterian church and I would stop and I would walk in and I'd say, and secretary would say, yes, can I help you? I'd say, is the pastor in? Oh, he is, but who are you? Oh, I, I'm just a nobody. I'm just somebody. I, I just, I need to talk to him. Well, what would you like to talk to him about? Oh, I want to talk to him about the covenant. I want to talk to him about baptism. I want to talk to him about the family. Is he here? I was serious. I mean, I have a baby at home. I need to know what to do with this. What am I going to do with this child? How does God see this little girl that's in my life? And I made that practice to multiple Presbyterian churches. And I'm going to give you a sad reality. Most of those ministers did not care to even have that conversation. That's true. But I remember walking out of one of those churches. I remember where the church was. I remember what street that church was on. And I remember walking out and there was a Westminster confession laying on the table. And I picked it up. I didn't know what it was. And I'm looking at it. He goes, oh, hey, you can take that with you. Thank you. So I go out. I get in my little Toyota truck. I open that thing up. And I just start reading. I'm still there an hour later reading. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. I didn't know anything like that existed. Where has this been? And then I found out it was 300 and something years old. And I was confused. Where is all these Christians? 
I called up a friend of mine. I said, you're not going to believe what I got in my hands. I got this thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith. You got to see this thing. Listen to this. And I just start reading it. We had never seen anything like that before. Long story short. I'm explaining and sharing these things with my wife. She's coming to these understanding as well. And in God's grace, we're having our second girl and had both of them baptized at the same time. So my first one was two years old before she was baptized. But we come to the solid understanding of this covenant that we're going to be talking about this morning. Okay? Now let's look. The, the, the message this morning, I titled it, Jesus and My Children. Jesus and my children. Luke does a masterful job here. It's not that verse 15, 16, and 17 has, well, never been uttered before by Jesus or this circumstance is the, has never, you know, is new, so to speak. But there are at least two other occasions. There's a record of Jesus doing this in Mark and in Matthew. The context is different. Now, the encounter with the rich young ruler is in both of those gospels as well, but it's interesting that this follows Jesus' teaching on divorce in those first two gospels. But Luke sandwiches this teaching between the parable of the Pharisee and the publican and the encounter Jesus has with the rich young ruler. And I think it's masterful that he does that. In fact, I don't think it ought to be um, surprising to us at all that Jesus had multiple times situations where he was brought children and he blessed them. And he prayed over them, and he prayed for them, and he loved on them. That should not surprise us in the least. But what we do see in each instance is the ignorance of the disciples still not understanding what Jesus is doing. Even in our record here, even in Luke's account, we see the opposition of the disciples who had just heard Jesus teach on arrogance and pride and contempt. Now being a stumbling block to those parents bringing their suckling infants, their infants and their toddlers to Jesus. Now, those are in the text. Those are the two different words used in the text. These were not teenagers. They were not young men and women. They were infants and toddlers being brought to Jesus. The ignorance of the apostles staggers us, I'm sure. They should have known better. But they didn't. And I'm reminded of how wayward the church goes when leadership is ignorant of the things of God, the covenant of God. I mean, this is a serious matter. How does God view your family? As Luke couches this between that parable and this encounter with the rich young ruler, it is obvious he is stressing this point of, of this dependence that we all have upon God being gracious to the sinner. The infantile faith of the publican on display, beating his chest, crying out to God, refusing to lift up his eyes to heaven, and 
crying out in a voice that says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus recognizing in the parable that it's he who went to his home justified. The encounter with the rich young ruler, as we will find out in the weeks to come, one who refused to see his own dependence and weaknesses and poverty before God, one who exercises the reality of arrogance and pride and, and strength. And here Luke puts this encounter that Jesus has with these parents and their teeny tiny children as a reminder to us that the kingdom of heaven is such, belongs to such as these. Well, let's look at the text and ask ourselves the question, where does this teaching come from? Well, remember what, remember what um, Luke is doing. Luke is drafting a history for Theophilus. Remember chapter one in those first four or five verses right there. Remember, Luke has been commissioned to draft a history of the humiliation, the gospel, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ for Theophilus' edification and growth as a Christian. That he might learn the history of the life and the sacrifice and the resurrection and the power and the victory of Jesus and the church. The book of Acts, because Luke wrote both. But Luke is also well versed in the things of God. Now look, he's a Gentile. Luke is not a Jew. Luke is not Jewish. Luke is a Gentile. And so he is gleaning much of this information, more than likely from the Apostle Peter, who was there with Jesus for much of these eyewitnesses' account. And of course, we know later on in the book of Acts, Luke was very much the partner with the Apostle Paul. Um, spreading the gospel and seeing the, the testimony of Christ spread throughout that whole region and even on up into Europe itself. But beloved, there are several things that we need to take into account as we come to this place where Jesus, before we look at the text, I want to remind us of the context of Scripture and make comments along the way helping all of us come to a better understanding of how Jesus views our children within this covenant of grace. Well, let's turn to Genesis. I'm a big fan of the book of Genesis. Um, why? Because it's the beginning. All right? It's the origin of things. In fact, um, you can uh, study Genesis and you will encounter every doctrine, every Christian doctrine has its place in the book of Genesis. Now we're going to read from Genesis 17 verses, well, I'm going to read um, verse 1 through 7. But before I do this, and before I read this account of Abraham, I need to make a couple of comments about Abraham, or Abram, as he is in this, at this point. First of all, Abraham is not, he's not Jewish here. He's a Gentile. He's a Chaldean. And a, he worships false gods. More than likely, Abraham part of the area of Chaldea that he was from, worship the stars and the moon. 
And so what we see from Adam on to Abraham, what do we see? What do we see? Even with the, the, the creating and making of Adam and Eve, God was going to be a God to Adam and Eve even before the fall, and he would have been a God to their children. Their children would have been in covenant with God, naturally. Now, did the fall change that? Well, what the fall changed was how they come to God. It didn't change the responsibilities. It didn't change the dynamics of the home. I mean, other than in a sinful sense, but it didn't change what the home ought to be. It didn't change what the home was created to be. It didn't change what a marriage is designed for. It didn't change the dominion mandate given to both Adam and Eve to go out and exercise dominion in the earth to the glory of God and to pass that truth on down to their children. It didn't change any of that. It certainly frustrated it, but it didn't change it. It didn't change it as a responsibility. And so all along the way, before we even get to Abraham, we would naturally understand that those would, even after the fall, would come to God by faith and they would bring their children to God as well. That's a natural principle that when I come to God, I bring to God all that I have, not just my money, not just my family, but my children. My business, all that I am, it belongs to God. And I lay it before him. And we come now to Genesis, and now we're going to have a very clear understanding of that covenant responsibility and obligation. Look at verse 1. And now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell, or Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. That's clear. So God's not only given this prob promise to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to save you. Abraham, I'm going to be your God. I'm going to give you the gift of faith. I'm going to give you the gift of repentance. You're going to call upon me. You're going to call upon me as now you're God. You're going to reject, deny, and repent of these false gods, and you are going to put your faith and trust in me as your only God. And I'm not only going to be your God, but I'm going to be a God to your children too. Just as I chose you, I choose them. That's the promise I'm giving you, Abraham. And you're going to walk before me. Now look at chapter 18. I'm just going to give you a few verses. We're not going to survey all of Scripture. That would take multiple, many, many Sundays. And it's not that that would be a bad thing. It's just not the intent of this text in Luke. But look at 1819. Now, this is the idea that, that God is, uh, is going to move in and certainly destroy the uh, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's going to be the context there, right there in verse 19. But notice, notice verse 19 of 18. For I have chosen him, that's Abram, Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now notice the means here. I'm just going to point out one thing. Now remember what God had already promised Abraham, that he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations and kings would come forth from him. Well, how's that going to happen? 
Well, he's going to have to have children. Now, he's 99 years old. It's not natural for 99-year-old people to bear children, even to father children. But he does because the name that God uses for himself is the God of all power. God has the power to cause Abraham to be able to father children. But how is Abraham going to fill the earth with these, this seed of faith? Well, verse 19 tells us how that's going to happen. It's the mechanism, if you will. For I have chosen, there's election, him so that he may command his children and his household after him to do what? Now, Abraham, what does it mean that Abraham's going to command his children? He's going to disciple his children. Abraham is going to disciple his children in the ways of God, in the ways of the Lord. Abraham is going to raise up his children to be followers of Almighty God. How's he going to do that? By teaching and instructing them. And notice what he says. By doing righteousness and justice so the Lord may bring upon Abraham all that it was spoken about him. The Lord is going to use means what Abraham's going to do. He's not going to sit passively by and just, okay, Lord's going to bless me and there's going to be a lot of good things come out of this. No, Abraham is to begin at 99 years old to father children and guess what? Disciple them in the things of God commanding them to obey the Lord, commanding them to walk in righteousness, commanding them to have faith in God. That's the first. Commanding them to believe and to trust and to rest in God alone. Look at Deuteronomy chapter six. I'm hoping we can get through some of this preliminary stuff and We'll look at the text and it'll just make so much, uh, it'll be so much clearer to us. Notice in Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. This is 40 years after them coming out of Egypt, okay? This is after that whole generation, that Egyptian generation of Hebrews have died out. What generation was that? All that were over 20 years old. All of those who were 20 years old and older have died out in the wilderness and now that generation that was 20 years and younger is about to enter into the promised land. And this is what Moses tells them to do and this is what the Lord told Moses to tell him to do. Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Sounds New Testament, doesn't it? These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. That doesn't sound like legalism, does it? No, that sounds like a heart change. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk with them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. Meaning that you have to do all that you can do to disciple these children in the ways of God. Why? Why? Because they're the Lord's children. They're the Lord's children. You, you understand? They belong to him. We are the children of God and our children are God's children too. Now let's back up to chapter five. Now I want to show you something here. Because there are two extremes that we have to fight. Two extremes we have to fight. We have to fight that one extreme that I've already mentioned, this liberal Presbyterianism that says, well, all you need to do is baptize them and send them on their way. And well, you know, the, the promises of God are automatic. 
They'll just happen. Don't worry about it. They're saved, almost a Protestant baptismal regeneration kind of thing. We have to, we have to, we have to stay away from that. That's not what the Bible teaches. But we also have to fight the other extreme that our children are nothing more than the offspring of Satan. An evil and ungodly generation. As one southern theologian put it in describing the children of Christians, oh, this is so embarrassing. He described Christian children as vipers and diapers. And unfortunately, there are a lot of Presbyterians that hold that view. Those are two extremes that we fight and battle. And what I am presenting to you is, I believe, the biblical model. It's the faithful model. It's the same path that Abraham walks, and yet it recognizes the sovereignty of God and his election. It recognizes that he is the one that puts children in a certain home with certain parents under certain circumstances and in certain conditions so that they may be, well, I mean, discipled, brought up and nurtured in the ways of God. And I know many Christians that grew up in Christian homes that didn't have a clue what discipleship is because they were never discipled. They were took to church. They were brought to church, but they were never discipled. It was left to the spirit of God to do whatever he pleases. And I hope that's why I emphasized Genesis 18 with you. But look here at Deuteronomy chapter five, verse one, it says, and Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the ordinances which I am speaking today in your hearing that you may learn and observe them carefully. When the Lord your God made a covenant with us at Horeb. Hmm. Did the Lord make a covenant with them at Horeb? Now Horeb is Mount Sinai. That's at that mountain when they first come out of Egypt. Now, remember what I said earlier. What generation is receiving Deuteronomy? Well, they are those that were 20 years or younger or not even, not even had been born yet. And what is Moses saying? That God had made a covenant with you. Now, let that sink in. Because if there is an argument for covenant children, it's right there. Their parents and grandparents had perished in the wilderness for unbelief, for their unbelief, and God is maintaining a covenant with them generationally, and now he is starting fresh and anew with their children and grandchildren, saying, now to you have been given this covenant. Look at verse three, and the Lord did not make this covenant with our fathers, but with us and with all of us who are alive here today. That is a powerful, powerful lesson right here. That God is maintaining his promises to Abraham. That generationally in this everlasting covenant, he's gonna be a God to his descendants. However, if there is a generation that lacks faith and refuses to believe and trust in God, guess what? They are wiped away and Jesus begins or God begins in Christ with a whole new generation. Exciting faith, repentance and belief and obedience. Because God will have a seed in the earth, beloved. Let's turn into the New Testament. We're going to show that this is the unity, this covenant of grace is the overarching unity in the whole Bible. Now, there are differences between the Old and New Testaments for sure. Um, however, though that covenant of grace 
allows us to maintain a unity over both the Old and New Testaments. How so? Well, because, well, there's only one faith. There's only one God. There's only one kind of repentance, right, that leads to that uh, relationship with God. There's only one kind of obedience. There's only one law, if you will, right? So there's this overarching unity to both the Old and the New Testaments. And then when we get right here in the book of Acts, notice even how the apostles, after the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, uh, comes upon them. And and Peter begins to preach in chapter 2. Notice in verse 37, they start uh, feeling the weight of their guilt and ask Peter, what shall they do in order to escape this wrath that is, that is due to them? Peter says in verse 38, repent each of you and be baptized in the, in, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Peter is saying, listen, this same promise, this promise of what? The cleansing of the Holy Spirit, being, being that we receive the Holy Spirit, and then there's this faith and repentance. He says, this same promise belongs to your children. Not just those who are alive today, but those who are yet to be born. And even, even unto the Gentile nations, as far as the gospel will go. Nothing different, is there? Look at Acts 16. Again, to show you some of the... Um, headship, the federal covenantal side of things. I'm going to give you Lydia. The gospel is coming into Europe under the apostle Paul. Look at 16 verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now notice, what does verse 14 say? Whose heart was opened? Whose heart did the Lord open? What does the Holy Scriptures teach us? The Lord opened Lydia's heart. But who was baptized? Lydia's household. Uh, Now, that's very Abraham-esque, isn't it? I'll be a God to you and to your children after you. Look at 1631. This is the Philippian jailer. I'm going to read this verse, and then we'll get to our text. And they said, this is Peter talking here, I mean Paul. And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved, you and your household. It seems to me, beloved, without performing scriptural gymnastics, the plain and simple teaching of the Word of God is what? There's an overarching unity that the Old and New Testaments, the way God views Christians, the way God views believers and their children. Amen? Do you see it? It's consistent. It's, it, it covers all of Scripture. There's no deviation. There's no break. There's no Old Testament way we view children and a New Testament way we view children. We, I mean, think about it. In the Old Covenant, which is supposed to be, well, a more narrow covenant, if you will, shadowy, it accepted the children. But in the far greater, broader, more glorious covenant, in the presence and reality of Jesus Christ, we don't accept your children. Does that even register with you? The children of believers were accepted under the narrow, shadowy, well, promises of Jesus coming. But when Jesus gets here, they're not. 
And that's exactly the way many Christians view children and covenant families. Now, let me illustrate this with you realistically. If, if this extreme, if this extreme that these are vipers and diapers, children of believers are nothing more than vipers and diapers. They're unbelievers. They're, they're wicked. They have, you know, they are just, they're, they're cursed of God. Well, if you have a Christian family, say a Christian uh, mom and dad, that's two. Just a little simple math project here. What happens when you have two, three, and four children that are vipers and diapers? Can you still claim to be a Christian home? Can you still have a Christian home when the sum of the home is more leaning toward unbelievers than believers? Now, I know you're going to say, that's silly, pastor. Well, of course it is. That's my point. My point is, why is it called a Christian home? Because of the headship of the home. Because of the parent of the home is a Christian and they have the overriding responsibility to do what? See the discipleship of God in the home, to see God honored, to see God praised, to see God worshiped, to see God served. See, we don't look, when we, when we find a family from Afghanistan who are Muslims and they have eight children and they come over here, we don't say, oh, well, those are just um, Middle Eastern family. No, we say that's a Muslim family. But we don't apply that same logic to the Christian family. Now, brothers and sisters, listen to me. What I'm demonstrating with you is that children don't come into this world automatically saved. But they do come into this world favored. How so? Well, to be born into a Christian home is a favor. To be born into a home where there is a praying mother, where there is a praying father or maybe praying parents where there's worshipers of the true and living God. That's favor, beloved. Don't you see it? We see here in Luke, what do we see in verse 15? Well, we have parents. I mean, the verse says, and they, who are they? Well, they are the ones who have a faith in Jesus. They are the ones who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They are the ones that believe that Jesus can heal them, that Jesus can raise the dead, that Jesus can cause blind eyes to see, the lame to walk. They are the ones that believe that Jesus can bless their children. They are the ones that are listening to him in faith. That's who they are. And what are they bringing to Jesus? Babies. They're babies. They're toddlers. They, the parents, are coming in faith and they're bringing their babies. The verb there in the text demonstrates this continual bringing to Jesus these children for him to bless them. What a beautiful picture. The little ones are certainly the object. This is the purpose of them approaching Jesus. They're not approaching Jesus for themselves. They're approaching Jesus so that he might what? Bless their children. Oh, what a picture of a parent. What a picture of a parent 
who's concerned about the future of their children, the life of their children, and all they want is for the Messiah to bless and pray over their babies. (laughs) We'll stand in line to sit on Santa Claus's lap. I see here a line to get to Jesus. The crowd is pressing in. That's the picture. That's sort of the intent of the text itself. They're pressing in and they're bringing their babies to Jesus. These little ones, the text says, these children, these babies. Notice in verse 15, And they bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking. Who are the disciples rebuking? The parents. What, out of all those texts that we've read, beloved, they had access to all of those Old Testament texts. How ignorant were these disciples? Even, I mean, look, this is on the heels of the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. I mean, he just got through dealing with contempt. And now what are these ignorant disciples, what are they doing? They're saying, hey, hey, we can't be bothered. Don't be bothering Jesus with these babies. They're not important. Sounds like a lot of modern churches. Certainly sounds like our culture. Babies aren't important. They can be aborted. They can be cast aside. We'll just let anybody educate our children, right? Well, we're learning where that's going, right? We've learned what happens when parents give up their responsibilities and their God-given rights and responsibilities to their children. We're seeing it, aren't we? Sacrificing these children to the God of this age instead of bringing them to Jesus All they wanted Jesus to do was bless them. You come to church this morning. I mean, we've got our dynamic here in this church. We have older children. We have grandchildren. We have no children. We have small children. And yet all of us have a responsibility to this text no matter where we are. So you don't have children yet. Pray for your children, your future children. Pray for the husband and for the wife that you're going to have and the children you're going to have. Pray that you will be faithful and bring them to Jesus. If you have older children, maybe they're too big for you to bring to Jesus. You take Jesus to them. There's a couple of things that I don't care about the way my children think of me. And that is they can think I'm a religious fanatic. I don't care. But I'm going to press upon my family to think like Christians, to act like Christians, and to be Christian. Period. Without exception. If you're a Christian. Notice in verse 16, so these disciples step up and they say, hey, Jesus can't be bothered with these babies. Look at verse 16. Jesus now rebukes the disciples. He, he, but Jesus called for them saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, notice what Jesus says here. Jesus is now correcting the disciples and hopefully correcting their understanding of what it is for these parents to bring their children to Jesus and to seek his blessing, which is a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's exactly what they should be doing. And instead of helping the children and helping the parents, hey, come this way, start another line over here, give me the child, I'll hand them to Jesus. Instead of aiding the parents to bring their children to Jesus, they're becoming stumbling blocks to the parents. You remember what Jesus said? 
about those who would become a stumbling block to these little ones, that it would be best for a millstone to be tied around their neck and cast into the deepest of the deep sea than to hinder, than to cause, to hinder and cause any of these little ones to stumble with me. Notice, he rebukes them, but look at verse 17. Verse 17 is the emphatic statement that we'll end with and we'll look at and certainly make some application to because I think this is, this is just, you know, where it lies in verse 17. Notice how, it's, notice how the verse begins. Truly, that's the emphatic point. Listen to what I've got to say to you. Truly, I say to you, what Jesus is doing is drawing attention to what he's about to say. Listen to this. Take note. Don't forget it. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Not only has Jesus already said the kingdom of God belongs to these little ones, it's theirs. Now, how do they receive the kingdom? By faith. What is the expectation when children come to the church and they're presented for baptism and there's vows given and there's vows taken and there's a baptism given and, and, and there's the, the discipleship? What's the expectation that we ought to have of that child in the, in, in the kind and gracious countenance of God? They're, they're going to express faith in Christ because they're in an environment of love and nurture. That's why, beloved, we must be a church that nurtures little ones. We must be in a church that prays for little ones. We must be an encouragement to the little ones. We must foster kindness and, and, and be an example to these little ones instead of giving them the wrong and bad examples and causing them to stumble. All oh, that is nothing but a bunch of hypocrites at that church. And I get it. I mean, some of it's just railing against in unbelief, but you know what? Some of it's right. Some of it's right. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. What's the example in the context? The publican. What is it to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Does it mean you're naive? Does it mean you're ignorant? Does it mean you're silly? No. Look at the context. It's dependence. Inability. What's it like? What is it to receive the kingdom of God like a little one? If, they were, if these parents were to lay these babies down and leave them where they are, what would happen to them? They perish. They die because those babies are completely dependent upon the parent for care and nurture and sustenance. They can't take care of themselves and that's exactly where we are before God. We are the sinner like the publican. I have no ability to save myself. I cannot do it. I'm totally dependent upon God my Father to open my eyes to Jesus. I'm like a baby. Left in my unbelief, I will perish in hell. Listen. Well, that's what it means. It doesn't mean to be ignorant. It doesn't mean to be silly. It doesn't mean to be immature. It just means you're dependent upon God to save you. You can't save yourselves. Faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What are some of the applications? I know we've gone long this morning, but I feel like this is important. I feel like this is needed, necessary. Realigning our understanding of a Christian home and why our homes are blessed by God because he has chosen to be a God to us and to our children. And we're to take that seriously. 
We're to love these children to the kingdom of God. We're to sacrifice for these children to the kingdom of God. We're to place these children and grandchildren on our own shoulders and present them to Jesus day after day and week after week, whatever it takes, whatever it takes. And let me tell you something. Hey, hey, look, men and women, beloved, brother, sister, if you have wayward children, don't give up. Remember the parable of the importune widow who constantly beat on the door and wanted, give me what I want, give me what I seek, and I'm praying for my child's salvation. Remember the prodigal son was a covenant child. I made that point. Don't give up. Here, how do you pray? You don't pray that they save themselves, do you? You pray, you ask, oh, God, I call upon you and your covenant mercies and promises. Would you, Lord, make these promises, make these saving mercies a reality in my boy's life, in my daughter's life? Will you come, oh, God, and be their God? Would you come and open their eyes? Would you strip them of their worldliness? Would you take away, oh, Lord, all of this stuff that they've accumulated in this world? Will you, Lord, strip them of it? And will you have saving mercies upon them, oh, Lord? I'm calling upon you, oh, God. Come and make yourself known. Come and keep your word. You know, that's what Moses did in the wilderness. Remember when God, they would all get mad and riled up. Boy, they're going to stone Moses. And God's going, I've had enough. I, I'm going I'm to take care of them, Moses. And he said, oh, Lord, have mercy upon them. Lord, your name's at stake here. What would it look like if you destroyed your people out here in the desert after saving them out of Egypt? That's the way... What's Moses doing? He's prayerfully arguing with God the promises. And that's what you're going to have to do. That's what you're going to have to do. You're going to prayerfully argue with God his promises. And you're going to keep laying those promises before him. And Lord, you say, Lord, plead all I can. I can't save my son and daughter. I can't do it. They can't save themselves. Lord, I plead for your grace and mercy. I'm pleading your promises on my children. And I'm going to keep pleading. I have people that I meet with that I pray with that we pray those promises over their children. That's how we pray as Christians. We keep, and once we brought our children to Jesus and then they grow up and if they go astray, we, we come and we take Jesus to them. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, listen to me. We may spend one more lesson here just addressing some of these applications because I think they're vital and important. But today, rest in God's promises for you and your children. They're real. And they've been effectually working for thousands of years. Don't give up on God because he's not giving up on himself and his own promises Plead them, rest in them, cling to them because that is your hope. Amen? Let's pray. Now, blessed almighty God, thank you this, thank you this morning that we have had a, a, a vision of your love and care for our children. Lord, help us be like these parents And bring our children to Christ. Help us to plead the promises and the mercies of Christ upon our children. Lord, it's not, it's not too late. Lord, if they are still living, it's not too late. And I pray, O oh Lord, that if they want, if let us take them to Jesus, we will take Jesus to them. Lord, bless this good work, this noble work of a parent to see the kingdom of God grow and, and be nourished and fostered in our homes 
Forgive us, O Lord, where we have failed, and we have failed. There is not a parent, Lord, that has been perfect, that has kept all responsibilities. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us as moms, as dads, fathers and mothers, as husbands and wives. Forgive us where we've not been examples, Lord, and we've caused stumbling in our homes. And come, O Lord, cleanse us. Renew in us a passion for this covenant rule and law, O God, that you are a God not only to us, but to our children and even to our children's children. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.